Randy, are you ready to be on your very best behavior today? I can try, Lily, but I can't promise that I won't make some sort of a cheesy joke. But remind me, why do I need to be so good today? Well, today I'm going to make the joke because today's the day that we meet the big cheese. Oh, that's right, the new boss. I remember hearing about that, and I'm so glad you made the silly joke instead of me and got it out of <laughs> the way. But Mind the Product has now teamed up with Pendo, you know, the product adoption platform that makes your software better. I'm sure that's trademarked. Uh, I'm actually using them at the day job, and it's had some really promising results for us, which is a nice thing to be able to say today. <laughs> well, you will have to tell Todd Olson, founder and CEO, all about your experience, but maybe after our interview. Todd's written a book about how to create product-led organizations, which is perhaps not surprising for a guy who runs a business whose sole purpose is to make better products. That's always a massive challenge. Getting your company to be product-led is one of the hardest things to do. I can't wait to hear what he has to say about it. No more dilly-dallying. Let's get right into it. The Product Experience is brought to you by Mind the Product. Every week, we talk to the best product people from around the globe about how we can improve our practice and build products that people love. Visit mindtheproduct.com to catch up on past episodes and to discover an extensive library of great content and videos. Browse for free or become a Mind the Product member to unlock premium articles, unseen videos, AMAs, roundtables, discounts to our conferences around the world, training opportunities, and more. Mind the Product also offers free product tank meetups in more than 200 cities, and there's probably one near you. Todd, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast this week. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So for anyone who doesn't know who you are, and you know, We've already told people in the intro about Bendo, but for anyone who doesn't know about you, can you just give us a quick intro? Who are you and how did you get into this whole world? Yeah, so uh, my name is Todd. Uh, I am the co-founder and CEO of Pendo, and I started Pendo back in uh, late 2013. And Pendo, well, we helped elevate the world's experiences with software. And in doing that, we work with a lot of product teams. So that's why I'm here speaking about product. But you know, this is um, not my first time that uh, I've spent time in the product area. Uh, prior to this, I ran product at another software service company called Rally Software. Then throughout my career, I've been in kind of technical or product oriented roles, um, primarily enterprise software. And you have worn a few different hats. So when you talk to other people about what you do or kind of what you're specialist in, like how do you describe yourself? Are you a product person or a tech person or an entrepreneur? Well, I've described myself as all those things. I mean, uh, <laughs> yes, I'm an entrepreneur. This is the, the third company I've created from scratch. So I, I maybe it's a problem or maybe it's a good thing, but I definitely like starting things from scratch. I, I'm a builder. I like building things. And sometimes it's building a company. Sometimes it's building a product. I, I definitely think of myself as a product person. <laughs> I think in terms of force rank backlogs, not only in my life, but at work as well. And I think that style of thinking benefits me, not just from a, you know, building actual product, but to thinking about how to lead businesses. Uh, and yeah, clearly I'm, I'm a tech person. You know, I've, I've, I started programming at the age of 14. Uh, I've been, 
like somehow surrounded by tech since then in my career, never really contemplated uh, a career in any other sort of general market. And um, it's what I am. It's what I love. I mean, it's, it's not even a job for me. It's just, it's just part of who I am. So aside from starting companies, you also found time to write a book about your style of running them, about being a product-led organization. So let's dig into that a bit. What does being a product-led organization actually mean? Yeah, so um, when I started thinking about this whole concept of writing a book, I've been thinking about this concept for a while, but I think for the first time in my life, at least, I feel like I had something to say. You know, I feel like I had a narrative and a point of view that, that was worthy of putting on um, paper, so to speak. And, and the whole concept was organizations thinking differently and putting product at the center of the overall customer experience. You know, I think product's always been a piece of things, but now product often is the experience. Like, and there's a growing set of companies that have been starting to leverage these techniques. And what you see is companies that are, focusing on more uh, product-led, more digital-led ways of engaging with their customers. And uh, and I and the alternative, the, the contrast to that is kind of more, what I would just very simply characterize as more human-led ways. And, you know, we're seeing more and more uh, modern or product-led ways of doing that. And I, I really wanted to capture that and talk about a lot of those techniques and the implications for businesses as they move um, in that direction. One of the, so one of the first times I kind of heard of product led was in the context of not being product led, but being more sales led or tech led as a business. Um, and to me, it kind of meant uh, that the sales organization was driving everything forward. They were kind of making the decisions and they had a lot of authority on what was was happening. And then similarly in a tech led organization that happens but more from a technical point of view. So with product-led, does that mean because product in itself is considers sales and tech and marketing and the customer experience, like all in one, does it mean basically just a very balanced business with no one kind of throwing their weight around? Yeah, I, I um, that, look at, um, yeah, this is something I, I talk about all the time. I mean, you know, um, when we use terms like sales led, it's it or even marketing led. Uh, I've heard mm. you know terms used all the time as well. It, it's this concept that those functions some, somehow have an outsized influence over the overall direction of the company. It sort of make people do things that they don't actually naturally want to do. And frankly, I just feel like those those concepts are dysfunctional. You know, you know, it's and then actually even on the engineering led, people say, "Oh, it's an engineering led business." That implies that they're, they're building things that customers don't want. That's often when I when, <laughs> when people say that, that's what they mean. Um, oh, the engineers have to tinker and solve hard problems, independent of whether customers actually want that or not. I hear that all the time as well. Um, those terms are typically not used in a positive light to describe businesses. They're typically used in a very <laughs> very negative light. So 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 no product led. I. I, I don't mean the company's dysfunctionally having product lead the business. What I rather mean is like every department thinks about how they can leverage the product to provide a better experience for customers. You know, so so rather than the product team leading the whole company in, in some sort of like odd way, it's rather how those departments can actually use the product itself to better advance its causes. And I use examples like um, finance teams that find way to do collections in product. 
Because typically, every, generally every company has this notion of like collections, collecting money from customers. And like very often it's pretty manual. It's emails, it's dropping off invoices, sometimes phone calls. Well, geez, like why not do it in product? Why not like send people a message or somehow find ways to engage with customers in, in a different way than simply phone calls or email? Um, and by the way, we're seeing companies do that have higher success rates. So, so it's an example of how the finance team can be more product led and leverage the product rather than the company, you know, having some department that's, that's, that's uh, leading it. It sounds like there's a lot of, it puts a lot of demand on the product and dev teams or, you know, the product development teams, let's put it that way, to, to be efficient and get a lot done. How do you know, you know, there's a, a tension there between the, what the product team wants to do, which is let's focus on the right goal and not put dates on the roadmap versus sometimes the, the needs of the company. How do you know when you've put enough time into something, when it's time to give up on, on a bet and say, actually, we've spent enough time on this, we need to pivot to the next thing? Well, look, I mean, for everything that you're building, you got to have a why. And it starts there. So if you're, you're building something, you have initially, what's the goal of this thing? What's the why? Like, what are we trying to accomplish? And checking in constantly on that and understanding, okay, when we achieve this metric, this KPI, um, this level of functionality, maybe on, on a backlog, like, is this enough to satisfy the why that caused us to do this in the first place? Now, the reality is if you don't get there, you basically wasted time and no one wants to waste time. So I think any time I'm, I'm looking at coming off of an initiative and moving on to an initiative, it's, it's have we satisfy the why? Have we... Have we met the business case originally? Can we measure whether we've met the business case? And sometimes we have, and we can move on. Sometimes, frankly, it needs a little more time. You know, and we, I think I advocate usually for sticking with something to actually, you know, check a box uh, before we actually move on to the next thing, because there is a switching cost when we move from initiative to initiative. So as a, as a company builder, as well as a product person, <laughs> How does your why or how did your why evolve throughout the life of Pendo and, and some of the other businesses that you've worked on? And how did you bring your teams along with that journey of an evolution of the why? Or, ha- or maybe it hasn't changed at all and you've just been like. <laughs> yeah, certainly the why the business has evolved a bit. I wouldn't say it had a major change or a major pivot. So and I, I think that um, isn't to say that for some companies you don't need to have a pivot. We've just been sort of fortunate in that. The why we picked is a big market, lots of things to do, plenty of work to still be done. It's it's a decades long why, and and you know so ours is improving the world's experience with software. There's always going to be more software, and there's always going to be opportunity to improve it. So, so that just right there, it's just a very generic why and generic vision, which which um, gives us a, a lot of thing to do. And honestly, it we're about eight and a half years in as a business. Like, I feel like I'm just getting started in so many ways. Like, geez, I really want to do this for like multiple years. We still haven't done it yet. Or geez, I really want to do this. You know, and, and look, we got to make trade-offs. That's a big, big part of our project. Like lots of things I want to do that we haven't had time to do. But um, I will say we've gotten smarter and better at how we articulate it. And we have um, gotten better at understanding what to say yes to and what to say no to. Because while I say that broad vision is not incredibly specific so it's you know how do we think of what roles we serve or personas and um from there you know we've obviously served product oriented personas when i say product oriented i mean 
obviously product managers, product owners, probably product marketing, very often user experience, design. You know, those are kind of, I would say, core personas for us. Um, but there's been like adjacent personas like customer success. And uh, we, we've actually revisited these over the years. And, and uh, actually, many, almost every conversation, we have reaffirmed ourselves that we're going to stick to our knitting and stay with the current personas. Uh, we may have some secondary personas, people that log in that we aren't actively building for. But um, we're going to build for the personas that are our core to our business. And, and, and so that's been an area that I think we've been tested on as a business over the years. There's also things like markets. Like, do we serve every vertical market? Do we serve B2C businesses and B2B businesses? We started off primarily selling to B2B businesses. But as the company evolved, we've expanded to do B2C. And, but, and, and honestly, it happened because some businesses are both. Like you're talking to a bank, banks have B2B applications and B2C are. So a bank's using us in their B2B and they go, we want to use you on your B2C. And I mean, I guess we could have just said, no, (laughs) we don't do that. But like the team liked us, they understood what we did. It it, it was a natural evolution of our our mission and vision. So so I think um, those are areas where time after time, we have expanded or grown what we do. And, you know, you always have, you always have to have some notion of focus and some notion of things that we say no to. But after a while, like if you get pulled in enough, you know, you get pulled enough, you see enough use cases. It sometimes makes makes sense to actually expand that that market to make sure you're capturing the opportunity. So how do you how do you balance that? You've got a portfolio of existing customers and markets, and then you've got new ones that are untapped and and very tempting at times how do you manage that that portfolio you said you've got one big why but i'm guessing there's a lot of little whys underneath that yeah so it's it's um we've wrestled with a lot of strategic decisions and and um you know i, I think one of the things that you know we we've been using this process um similar to okrs it's it, it um but it's called this rhythm process it's it's inspired by a book called rhythm and They've got a lot of things around annual initiatives, quarterly initiatives, blah, blah, blah. But they have this concept of three to five year winning moves, which I really like, which is at any given time, having a backlog of items that are going to double your revenue in the next three to five years, double. And um, we, as a leadership team, meet semi-annually and review this backlog of, of winning moves. And we also look at it, we look at it from a, like, okay, does the upside or the value thing. So like doubling is the minimum threshold, but how much above that? Then we look at, of course, the general level of effort, like how organizationally ready or capable are we to address this particular move? And it creates, you know, um, essentially a, a backlog. And, and over time, we've debated when, like, how many of these can we do and when to do them? and um, you know, we very consciously decided over those two years, like one of them we finally started working on after three years of talking about it, um, mostly because we were getting more uh, more present feedback and the number of customers asking the amount of revenue was really, really high. Some of them we've been talking about for four or five years and we still aren't working on. And in part, what I found is this bar of doubling, it's a pretty high bar. And there's lots of things you can work on. They're definitely not going to double you. So being forced to think about what honestly could, I think it's been a really, really good discipline. And there's some markets we haven't touched because, no, we know we can increase our 
you know, business by maybe 50%, maybe 30%. That's not a hundred percent. And, um, I think sticking to that bar and like also looking at the, the cost side has been a really helpful framework for helping us evaluate the, these big, you know, kind of market, um, you know, market expanding initiatives. Um, and, and, you know, the other thing in any given time, you're always looking at your work in progress and making sure you don't have too much work in progress. Um, so, so we want to make sure that the things we are working on are a finite set. The organization can consume them. It's not going to like break us because we're doing too many things. So, so why it took us years to work on this thing is that, you know, it took us a while to get to a certain point where we had enough humans, the company that we could, we felt like it would break us to work on something additional. So, so yeah, there's no perfect answer here, but you have to, one, I don't think we've been reactive to anything. You know, I think this has been a very proactive thing since we've been talking about it since the company started. So it sounds like you have a very product led approach to strategy um, and the way you kind of choose the the way that the business is um, heading. How do you instill that kind of thinking across the whole business? Because you mentioned finance teams before and whilst, um, you know, engineering and uh, design and product itself will all be familiar with the kind of product thinking process. Other teams like finance and HR, um, you know, may not be so familiar with it. So how do you bring everyone into that same mindset? Um, well, there's a lot of this discussion around it. I mean, I, I think we all know that, well, we, look, look, we are a software company. We, we build a software product and we sell a software product. So, you know, like, like that's our core. I mean, that's what we do for a living. And so everyone on our team knows that, you know, starts with what we have and, and what we're building and how, what kind of value it delivers to customers. Then, uh, you know, if you do enough there, it makes everything else easier. I mean, the reality is, you know, we have a sales team. Yes. Marketing team. Yes. The better the product, the easier it is for those individuals to do their job. It really is that simple. And our, our salespeople love our product. They respect it. I think, I think we work very, very hard um, to make sure that it's uh, an easy thing to purchase. Having said that, I think our sales professionals are amazing people and they're super professional and do a wonderful job as well. But I mean, I think every offsite we have, every planning session we have, it starts with our product strategy, how we think about it, how we're attacking the market, how we differentiate um, as a product, as a business against everyone else. Um, And it's just part of the ethos of the business. And and one of the other frameworks I love, love um, Jeffrey Moore is, you know, I think he's got a ton of marketing frameworks, you know, across the chasm is probably what he's best known for. He's got one of them. I think it's in, in inside the tornado. I think it's the book. I, I got a bunch of books. One of it's not, it's not the chasm book. It's like one of the second or thirds after he talked about this concept of bowling alleys and every company starts with a, a pin, which is some market or ICP, you know, deal customer profile and some solution. And then as you're navigating through this alley, you can either, take what you have and sell it to a different market or you know, different ICP, or you can sell a different thing to the same ICP. You can't sell a new thing to a new ICP. That's too hard. No one, I mean, I would say no one can do it. I'm sure someone will figure it out. Um, but, but thinking of strategy in terms of I'm going to, to navigate one market at a time, one solution at a time um, is just a, 
I think a very disciplined way of thinking about how we march this market. And I will use these frameworks, these models all the time, the executive team and the company, you know, um, I like models. They, I, I think they're useful in helping one communicate with people effectively. Like, you know, and I, I think that's kind of how I've tried to drive the, this culture and to our leadership and to the whole company. If 2022 is the year you're looking to advance your career, expand your network, get inspired, and bring the best products to market, then join Mind the Product for their next conference this May. At MTPCon San Francisco plus Americas, you'll soak up invaluable insights from an epic lineup of the best in product, covering a range of topics that will challenge and inspire you to step up as a product manager. You've got the option to go fully digital for both days or get the best of both worlds with a hybrid ticket, digital on day one and in person at the SF Jazz in San Francisco on day two. I was at the most recent edition of this event in London last year, and it was just awesome. Get tickets now at mindtheproduct.com. So does that work when not picking on sales or marketing? They're wonderful. They, they make sure that I have a job. But sometimes they get very excited about a short-term opportunity, about there's a customer who wants this. Let's just get close this big deal because, you know, obviously they're often motivated by that end of year, end of quarter bonus. Um, does that model, the, using that framework, help make sure that they stay focused on the bigger picture? Oh, 100%. 100%. I mean, you have to have discipline and structure to handle these one-offs. And look, anytime, look, one-offs are going to come in even when you have discipline and structure. So some sales rep, you know, like, I don't know, take some aspirational logo that we all want on our website. We all want this logo and they just want this thing. And um, so, you know, even with our strategy, I'll still look at a lot of things and we'll have conversations. And I guess the first question, the first question always is, is this a good, a good use case for our product? Like, can we deliver the value the customer wants? Is it going to be a good experience? If the answer is no, we move on. Like if I can't deliver a good experience, it doesn't, it's not worth our effort. Right. Um, the other thing I ask is, is this something every customer will want at some point? Like, are they just the first to ask? Now, if they're just the first to ask, that's different than this is like one-off bespoke software that only they're going to ask. Like, like, and so some of these things, I, 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 they're more tactical than they are strategic. Like, let, let's use an example. It's a practical example um, that, that plenty of comp companies have. Uh, um, uh, localization. Localization is a really good one. Many products, you know, we're all speaking in English, so I can, I, I can probably say this. Many products start in English and they move to other languages, right? Every product manager has to deal with this. And so the question is, when do we add other languages? Common product management question. You get, and finally you get this big enough customer in and you start running through this list. And, and um, so here, here's the thing. Is it something that, that we're going to have to do eventually? Yes, we know that. We're an international company. We're going to do this eventually. So it's the, the, the checks. Now the question comes, when is the right time? Can we handle this? Can we deliver a good customer experience? Um, are we ready for all the process? Because like other thing is I could build something once, but how do I maintain it? I mean, because once I build it once, every new thing needs to make sure it supports that thing. <laughs> so the I call it the tail of any feature. 
Oh yeah, people say it's oh, it's one time built. There's no such thing as a one time build. Um, everything has a tail on it. So so then we start evaluating okay, what's the tail on this thing, and and again, can, do we have the capacity to like just better do that? And that, that's something that we have often in, in our conversations. And sometimes we'll go back and say, no, we can't do it now, but we can probably do it in a year or two years. And oh, uh, customer, can you wait one to two years? Because I'm comfortable saying, broadly speaking, one to two years we'll do this but definitely not now, right? And that, that's a good example. Um, I mean, similar things like, do we have an EU data center versus US only for US-based companies? Um, you are eventually going to need it. You have to with privacy laws, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the question is, when is um, when is it worth it? You know, there's this term we, we use, is the juice worth the squeeze? You know, um, and uh, so that's shorthand for, is it, is this worth it right now to go through this heavy lifting? And, you know, sometimes the answer is yes. And some is like, well, maybe not now, but maybe in a year. So it sounds great being product led in an organization. Um, and for any product manager out there, I'm sure they are thinking they're either smugly sat there going, Hey, this sounds just like my company. Um, or they're like cringing and in pain because, their leadership are not product led and um you know they they struggle with some of the decisions being made and the way that they're being made uh how do you kind of get buy in from a leadership team who are you know less product led um and perhaps more traditional in the way or old school maybe should i say in the way that they make business decisions which is not always the wrong way it's just a very different way to the way that product managers think about things yeah yeah look i mean um look change is hard no matter what change you know you want to do and and you know, depending on the organization and how they make decisions like yeah you know um you're gonna be thoughtful well first you know when i when i think about this this road and how to get decision making um one of the first areas I think is most controversial is product-led growth. Product-led growth is typically companies that leverage product-led techniques to, you know, uh, augment sales, potentially be more self-service purchase, things like that. And that often can be pretty controversial, specifically if you have a traditional sales team, because you have this question over, are you taking money out of humans' pockets that are at our business? Humans' pockets, by the way, they have a lot of influence over the direction of the business, right? Um, so my first recommendation is um, you may not want to start there. That may be one of the hardest arguments to start with. Um, so look at other areas where you can leverage product-like techniques to start showing how well they can work. And um, so it's, it's, it's kind of like this concept of picking a um, uh, lower-risk initiative where you can potentially drive value to then build on it, get it, get a win and then build on that win with other wins. And, and, you know, another term we, you know, is like run an experiment, get by in the run. Hey, hey, look, we're going to run an experiment because we think this is what we could do for our business. Let us, you know, give us three months to help prove that we can do it. And I think that's a great, great place to start. And it could be everything from, improving your onboarding experience because a lot of it is very human led. Um, you know, and a lot of it is like just teaching people how to use the software. So it's actually not like incredibly like high value activities. It's just like, Hey, this is how this thing works. Like go do it. Um, another one I find is a place like the start is self-service. The number of times people contact support over things that are very, very basic. 
is far too much. So go to your support org, find out like some of the top support tickets, top support tickets or areas, and then try to create product led ways to um, deflect those tickets. So put, you know, messages in product, put a little help center there. If you can reduce support load, that's a better experience that, that is more affordable. That's another area where within a couple of months, you could probably show a demonstrable ROI. So think, look, pick something, um, I say small, but it, it you know, could actually have a really sizable impact. I mean, I've, I've, I've had customers I've worked with that have saved like millions of dollars in a month. So I, I don't mean to, to diminish the potential ROI, but, but I was like, start with something like that, show, show results and then start building on it. And then that'll help um, educate uh, executives of your business how product-led can have an impact. So we're guessing it's not just on the bottom line, or at least not just directly on the bottom line that being product-led helps. I'm guessing, I mean, it sounds great. I'm guessing from a cultural perspective, it must help with recruitment and and other things, or am I going down the wrong path? No, look, I mean, I think this concept of being product-led, it's not just cost savings. Um, Though, I mean, you know, we go back to your kind of, preamble it it's about providing a better customer experience and and meeting the customer where they are i mean the reality is and you know today all of us we're living lives that that are um not incredibly nine to five when we get all of our things done we may want to use our bank at 7 p.m on a saturday night to do something or we may want to like go into our HR system on uh, a Sunday morning and take care of something. Cause that's the best time to do it. You know, you know, we're doing things in the middle of the workday that we have to do because it's the only time that, you know, whether, you know, it's now that we have this kind of hybrid work life, companies need to meet the users where they are when they're there. And um, so to me, it's about, uh, yeah, saving money. Yes. Um, in many cases, driving growth, but it's meeting the user where they are. It's like a better customer experience. And if you're delivering a great customer experience, your employees are going to be much happier. No one likes working for a company where that's hard to work with. No one. Like, mm-hmm. like how many times, like think about the bad customer experiences you have and it leads to like a bad brand. No one wants to work at those companies. I mean, I remember people calling at the phone companies, you know, it's just like, you know, because you know, the way they treat like. That is ultimately going to affect your ability to recruit employees because employees like going to work for brands they respect, they admire, they like working for. You know, even us, when we recruit people, we'll often recruit people because they loved our products, you know, or they love the experience with it. And so, yeah, of course it helps your employees. It feels good to work on something and build something that really helps customers. So Todd, we've got time just for one more and we would be failing the whole product community if we didn't ask you this (laughs) because we don't often get to interview the hippo in the room. (laughs) So I don't know if you've heard the expression, the highest paid person's opinion. (laughs) I'm assuming there that you're the highest paid person in your business, but maybe you aren't. Um, But anyway, um, so in a product-led organization and being the hippo in the room, how do you avoid being given special attention by your team around you and people just doing whatever you say? Yeah, I mean, in general, you have to be very, very careful um, when you're in these conversations. And first of all, 
There's nothing you can do to avoid it. The reality is you are who you are and people are going to treat you. They're going to treat you independent of your behavior. This is something I've learned. I've tried like mad to get people to change the way they behave. But the reality is when um, my role um, creates these things, it's not me. It's not Todd who does it. It's the CEO of the company that um, creates dynamics in certain rooms. And that's something to be, to be thoughtful of. A couple of things though that I coach a lot and I share a lot. One is I try to be, I try to come into every conversation with, um, I found this framework and I, I can share it with folks or tweet it or what have you um, around different modes within a meeting. Uh, some modes are brainstorming mode where the purpose and my, my role in that meeting, it's like everyone else's, it's, it's to share ideas, talk about pros and cons. That's kind of one end of the spectrum, a very open-ended meeting. And the other open-ended meeting is when we're, we're in a meeting to make a decision. In that case, usually people are coming to me because they want my decision. And that's a very different style of meeting. And so, so first off is like helping understand what is the purpose of this meeting? Are you asking me for my feedback? Are you not wanting my feedback? Is it just an information session where you're just going to tell me what is? And because if you're just coming in and tell me what's going on, you don't want my feedback, I'm probably not going to give it because, it's, again, you're not asking for it. But uh, in some instances, I actually want to have a brainstorming session. You know, they'll say, oh, we do, like, like, why don't we do a brainstorming session just to get some of my ideas that I have off my chest so at least I know you have them and you're uh, looking at them. Um, sometimes we're weighing three or four alternatives. And that, that's the other thing I, I like to focus my all of my product team on. This is something I coach every product manager on. If you're going to someone above you, don't just bring them like an answer. Like, hey, we're, we're doing this or we did this or this is our plan. Bring people your process and the options. Like, I love it when a team brings me like three options. You know, like, hey, we did all this work. By the way, here's some background on the work. And this is how we came. And here's our three options, and we're leaning towards this option. So then it's, okay, give me feedback on my options and give me things that you like and maybe don't like about various options. Because then the ultimate answer may be some hybrid, some combo of these three options. You know, Now, when some teams bring in just, hey, we're doing this, it's, and then, so there's two options. When I, I like that or I don't like that. And if I don't like that, I'm basically shooting down an entire team's bit of work that they could have spent months on. And that puts me in a pretty crappy position. Like, do you think I like shooting down ideas that people worked on? No, I don't like it. But sometimes I am put in positions where that is my only recourse. That is the only thing I can do. So what I like is just, again, continuing to push people on giving options, talk about trade-offs. I think I'm more valuable uh, in those discussions versus someone that's just like looking for an answer. Like we want Todd to bless this. Those are my least favorite meetings. Um, <laughs> uh, because I either bless it or I don't bless it. And if I don't bless it, people are upset, like super upset. <laughs> and yeah. I, it's almost unavoidable. Like I'm being set up to upset someone. That's fantastic. We talk a lot about uh, how do we present well? How do we deal well with other people? And we spend a lot of time doing things. Or when I coach people in organizations, I talk to them about, okay, when you're presenting to people, you have to do some empathy mapping and motivation mapping beforehand. You have to know why you're presenting what good looks like to them. But being your, you know, we don't often get the chance to put ourselves in the head of the, the, the hippo, the, you know, the CEO or someone else and really understand 
why is it they want it presented this way? What is an effective strategy to come in? And how do you tell a story well? How do you put yourself in their position so you can play it from the other side before you walk in the room? That was really clear. It was really nice. And it's a, it's a really good way of uh, explaining it. Yeah. The other thing is, like, look, I'm a, I'm a builder, I'm a product. I mean, I had, the other thing is I was a first product manager in this product. So I also have the most context. Like, we may have made a decision in 2015, and I have a strong why behind it, that the new product managers probably don't even know. And um, I don't want them to be burdened with their past decisions because the world's different today than it was in, like, say, 2015, 2016. But sometimes it's pretty useful context to understand just why we did it. Like, you know, so I think that's one thing I like to think about. And two, I mean, co-creation, I like creating things. So bringing me along for the ride and making me part of the creation process well, it brings me energy. So like, it's another good thing. So like, I, I want to do that. You know, I don't like, um, cause it's fun. Yeah. Well, I expect, uh, after your team have all heard this, you'll have no end of three options to, uh, critique. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> and, well, that's uh, always the hope. <laughs> and hopefully this interview has your blessing. <laughs> this is great. But, I loved it. Uh, it's been really great talking to you and, Thank you so much for joining us. Likewise. Thanks for having me. It was fun. The Product Experience is the first and the best podcast from Mind the Product. Our hosts are me, Lily Smith. And me, Randy Silver. Lou Ron Pratt is our producer and Luke Smith is our editor. Our theme music is from Hamburg-based band POW, that's P-A-U. Thanks to Arnie Kittler, who curates both Product Tank and MTP Engage in Hamburg, and who also plays bass in the band for letting us use their music. You can connect with your local product community via Product Tank, regular free meetups in over 200 cities worldwide. If there's not one near you, maybe you should think about starting one. To find out more, go to mindtheproduct.com forward slash product tank.